Hi, my name is Ian Parry and welcome to What the Future, the podcast produced by Future Leaders Mentoring. Today we're chatting with Hannah Bermudez in one of our special podcast series on leaders' life stories. Hi, Hannah. Hello. You okay? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. So listen, we spoke uh, a good couple of months ago, actually, in in uh, setting up a couple of things, and I was really fascinated by by your journey and and how you've kind of gone from one industry to another. And we'll and we'll get into that. So I don't want to put too many spoilers out early in it, but I just I'm really interested in where this podcast is going to go today and how how you're going to explain some of the things you're up to at the moment. Yeah, fire away. <laughs> Right. Let's jump straight into it then. So uh, tell us who you are uh, and what your role is today. Yeah. So my name is Hannah Bermudez um, and I'm the head of people and culture at Salford City Football Club. Um, so I've been there for about, about 15 months or so, something like that. So nearly a year and a half. Um, so what that entails, people and culture. So I look after the whole of the HR function. Um, I also look after safeguarding, so I'm the senior safeguarding lead for the club. Um, I look after employee welfare and well-being, so all the mental health provision for staff, equality, diversity, and inclusion, um, so the projects that go along with all of that. And I've just recently um, got player care, um, which I'm calling player experience, so that's a really exciting role that I just can't wait to to get started with, really. Um I also have a voluntary role as well. Um, so when my son was three months old, I just got so bored on my maternity leave that I needed something to do with my time. Um, I like to be busy. So uh, one of our local primary schools was looking for a governor who had HR experience. So I've done it for about five and a half years now. And I just love being involved in sort of developing people and, and young people in particular and having any sort of input into their educational journeys a real treat so it's something that I do try and make time for around my job when I can um so yeah five and a half years it's flown <laughs> I was gonna say just the way you were explaining the role then there was a lot going on in your day job and and obviously adding some of the sort of volunteer things into your day job as well that uh, sounds like you've got a busy time of it yeah I do because I've got two kids as well and a <laughs> husband who's like a third kid <laughs> and 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 obviously the the, you know you've been at um Salford City for a little while now but that was a a big change from one industry to another so that in itself would have been a a challenging time as well wouldn't it yeah so it was just after Covid so we'd have two years of Covid and Covid was really difficult for HR teams across the country just because it was non-stop. There was a lot of new things going on, things like furlough and key workers and different types of things in relation to absence and managing it and business continuity plans. It it really was a very difficult two years. And then as it started to ease and the restrictions started to ease and people could start sort of living a normal life as much as they can, Obviously, there were certain expectations with staff around flexible working and different things that people needed to get used to and different ways of managing. And I think at that point, I was sort of like most people, you learn to reassess your priorities, don't you? Whilst you're kind of stuck at home and you're grinding away. So I felt once that had eased up a little bit, it was time to try something new. You know, life's an adventure. But I think what also 
prompted that was that that my husband was ill the year before COVID, um, quite ill to be honest with you. And then it was straight from that into COVID, and I kind of just said to myself, I'm not going to let any sort of illness dictate my life anymore. So as soon as we could sort of go back to normal life, so to speak, I was like, it's time for me to concentrate on what I want to do. I'm so used to looking after everyone else and I want to start living my life properly again. So wanting an adventure, applied for this job completely out of the blue. You know, I wasn't expecting anything from it. And, and lo and behold, I got it and, you know, not looked back since really. Amazing. Um, so for those those people that that uh, aren't keen followers of football, where do, where does Salford sit in the sort of league system in England? So we're a League Two club. Um, so we've had, a, in terms of the, the club's journey, we've been on a real rapid um, success story, really. So the club got promoted kind of successful, like successfully through the leagues. Yeah. Um, and we've just made it into the playoffs um, on Saturday. So um, we've got, hopefully, we've got two more games to go and then fingers crossed we'll get to Wembley. So on Saturday, we play our first um, playoff game against Stockport. So everyone's really excited and you know we'll all be there cheering the team on well it's like a, a, a series of cup finals now I suppose isn't it with these sort of uh, playoffs yeah yeah so it's a really exciting time for the club and I think it's it's really testament to all the hard work that goes on you know on the field but also off it as well and I think sometimes people take for granted that yes there's 90 minutes where there's people on a pitch playing football but the amount of work that goes on behind the scenes, I think you just can't underestimate that. And everyone plays a part in that and everyone's job is special and contributes to that success. So I think sometimes when you are watching it, you, you do take that for granted. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'd <clears throat> like to get into today, uh, later in the podcast, that kind of football has been a professional sport for a number of years, decades um, but it seems that the back office or behind the scenes functions are, are catching up quite a bit now as far as, uh, you know, sports uh, treatment and psychology and just looking after the players. Um, and that's kind of catching up now and becoming a lot more professional. So I think it'd be good to get into that a little bit more later on. Definitely. Um, yeah. So so let's let's find out a bit more about you then, Hannah. So. Talk to me about your your first memory uh, and 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 maybe how you how you got to this memory as well would be interesting to, to sort of work out. Is it fixed in your mind and it's always where you go, or did you really have to kind of claw for it? Do you know what? I, I'm kind of weird in a way. I don't. I have certain memories that stick out, but I tend to kind of not dwell on the past either. So there's a series of events that get you to where you are. But it's not something that stick in and go, oh, do you know what? That was like a key turning point for me. All, all I remember when I was growing up was just being outside all the time. Like we would just play out constantly and we were never in the house. We'd just come in for our dinner or our tea and then we'd be straight back out again, which is funny really because I don't think I'd let my kids do that now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. the world's changed. But I just remember that there'd be a lot, the door would always be open, there'd be, kids coming in and out the house my mum and dad really weren't that bothered we'd be out on the fields you know either playing hide and seek or we'd be playing football or cricket um you know knocking on people's doors getting the ball back and, and all of that so I think 
my earliest memories were just doing that. So I've got two brothers and it was good because I was kind of always in and amongst the lads, really, I guess. Mm. Um, and I suppose from there on, I was always kind of more of the academic one of our family. But at the same time, whilst I enjoyed school, I found it just a little bit tedious. And I'm not going to say the word boring, but just tedious. I felt very hemmed in by the system of it. Mm. And sometimes when you're in that system, and I'm I'm trying to teach my kids this, that it's not the be all and end all of your life. It's literally what, like five years or so that you go to high school. And it seems like forever when you're in it. Yeah. But I felt very hemmed in by that. So as soon as I could... Basically, what I did, the, the approach that I had to it was work as hard as you can to get out of it, to do, to open more doors for yourself and, and more opportunities. So basically just work my ass off. And then I kind of fell into politics. So my dad was always very into into his politics and we'd always have chats. We'd always sit and watch the news and we'd have chats about stuff and and debate certain things. And I kind of got into it, into that. And then there was something that happened in my local area um, where one of the local MPs got involved. And I went down to one of the, the sort of community meetings yeah. and I was just fascinated by all these different opinions everywhere. So I just went up to him and said, can I do some work experience for you? So I think I was about 14 at the time. And then I ended up doing sort of like volunteering for different sort of political people, mainly that that MP off and on throughout my whole teenage years and then kind of got to my A-levels and they kind of, they offered that as a, a module to do. And I just loved it. I just kind of was fascinated by it. And because I'd kind of got an interest in current affairs and, and, and politics and seeing how important and how it impacts all areas of life, even though people are like, oh, don't do politics. Well, you actually do without realising it. Yeah. But that's what I wanted to do. So... Again, I started sort of working really, really hard to get on this quite exclusive course, um, degree course. And part of that would be moving down to London to work um, in the Houses of Parliament. So I was dead set on it. But equally, I knew from doing that for like seven years that it was very much a man's world, not very diverse, that this was going to be a real slog to get onto this course because I don't have I'm not a rich person. I don't have a lot of money. So how am I going to get there? And all it was was just hard work. So I did, and I went down there. I went to go meet the lecturers beforehand just to see if this was really the right fit for me because I couldn't go anywhere where I would feel uncomfortable and out of place. So um, one of the lecturers kind of saw something in me and kind of gave me a chance, really. And I suppose it was that her seeing potential in me opened that door for me and I ended up getting on that course met my husband th- through university he went to a different uni but through politics so we we met um at a conference a, p- a political conference so you know he, he's like what 17 years later <laughs> and wow. then we we moved to london um and i worked worked in the house of commons for the three different mps at the time and i feel in some ways that that taught me a lot of life lessons very early on. I've always been very independent, but I think it was just more being able to learn so that I could have my independence, really. You know, I'm not really sort of motivated by anything else other than knowing stuff so I can be more independent and work hard and do the things you enjoy 
Because yeah. I, I don't ever want to be in that situation where, like at school, you just feel hemmed in by your own circumstances. Yeah. I want to be able to have the freedom to do what I want to enjoy, essentially. Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. Wow. There's so much there to, to unpack. But yes. I wanted to sort of talk initially about your... So you're in school, you're feeling hemmed in. What do you think allowed you to kind of realise, well, hey, hang on. I just I just need to work through this period of time, you know, at such a young age where, you know, lots of our thinking is immature to, to, to realize that it's a period of time. I'm just going to work really hard to get to where I want to get to after this point, rather than, you know, literally throwing your, ta- your, your toys out of the pram and, and, and sort of going against the system. How do you how do you think you kind of realize that? I think it's like what your previous guest said, Colin, about intellectual curiosity. I had that from a very early age and I question a lot of things and sort of you start to realise that as you get older that these politicians, they don't know it all. They don't have all the answers in the same way that your mum and dad don't know all the answers, though you think that they do when they when you're a kid. Yeah. And I think it, I just learned that very early on to question things and to, to sort of make things better And I think it was just like seeing things and thinking, I don't have to have this life that everyone else seems to have around me where I live. And I wanted to go and experience how other people lived, you know, disadvantaged people, people who had more money than me and more opportunity than me, because I wanted to see what their reality was almost. And I realised that when I moved to London, I suppose how sheltered you can be sometimes. And I think you need to understand how other people live. And and when you're sort of in and amongst people who are coming to your MP or lobbyists saying this is a situation and this is what's going on, you realise that there's so much more to to life and what's going on outside your own house. Yeah. And I think that's what I learned in my early 20s. And I think working for those types of people as well and working in that arena where it was a real bear pit down in the House of Commons. And it was really... I felt it was a real, it was its own bubble in itself. And I think that's what annoyed me. And I knew how it frustrated me. And then it was kind of like, I've hang on a minute. I spent seven years and worked my absolute arse off to get to this point and be here. And I don't agree with a lot of the things that you guys stand for and, and what you do it and how you go about doing it that, I've learned a very early life lesson that of of when to quit, I suppose, and find something that find your tribe first of all, but find something that aligns with your values. And I think by being interested in current affairs and and obviously my dad probably honing some of that is that I have very strong values, and it was kind of knowing and I, I knew I know I always know what I want and I can always see it very clearly, but I won't do anything if it goes against my values so I think it's kind of that that shaped that journey yeah wow blimey so so talk to us then how you go from you know you you and Elliot you're in London you're living in London you uh you're working in the House of Commons which by the way I'm not sure how I could go there every day and not be just every day just thinking wow what an amazing place because it always blows me away every time I get there so you go from there to 
looking after all HR and safety matters in a rising football club. How how, how does that happen? Where, where, well, where's the journey? It was it is an amazing place and it is such a special place to me that the the Houses of Parliament it really is and every time I go there and I stand outside of that I can't believe I was there for like eighteen months. I guess it was a case of first of all I ran out of money I was at, we were absolutely skint when we lived there so after that. I moved back to Bolton. I actually commuted all the way over to Hull for my final year. So I used to get up at four in the morning and travel there because I couldn't actually drive at that point. Yeah. So that was really difficult. Finished my degree. And then I remember one of my tutors saying to me, you do realise that you're going to graduate in the worst economic circumstances there's been for like 150 years. So it was <laughs> that was around the time that the, the banks went bust and there were literally no jobs anywhere. So he said, it doesn't matter really if you've got, you spent four years doing this degree, you are going to struggle to get a job. And he wasn't wrong, to be fair. And I, I appreciated the honesty. So I ended up, I don't know if you remember, it's obviously pre-COVID days, but you remember swine flu? And yes. that was going round. I ended up getting flu. I don't know if it was that. And I was really poorly for about three weeks. And I literally just graduated. And I was thinking, what do I do with myself? So just throwing applications here, there and everywhere and ended up getting a job with Marks and Spencer's Shared Services. So that was obviously in the HR remit, um, which was a big outfit at the time. So that that was in Salford Key. So I got that job and I was kind of like, right, let's just go for it. And I, I really did love it. It was so interesting. Um, but again, I was just absolutely skinned. I couldn't even afford the petrol to get to Salford Key. So after about a year of working there, I went and worked for a housing association in Bolton. And I didn't leave there for about 12 years. So it was closer to home and I basically just got so into HR. I, I did it every, every single job you can imagine yeah. and kind of took every opportunity that I could and, and took on more responsibility, probably more than I was being paid for because I enjoyed it so much. Um, and part of that, I got qualified. So I did my master's in HR management right after I got married and, um, and then it kind of just went from there. So I just did rose through the ranks. So I started right at the bottom as a, an administrator on minimum wage and then ended up managing the HR department there. And then obviously COVID hit. And then then that brought me to, to where I am now. So I think it's, I think you've just got to take every opportunity. But I would say to people, if you feel like you're stuck in a rut with your roles and you think I'm right at the bottom here and I've got aspirations to be right up here, you couldn't be in a better place. You need to start from the bottom, I would say, because you need to understand the intricacies of your craft. You know, it's like anything, you've got to do your time. I think in HR, it's very experience-based. You've got to put yourself in a lot of situations because it's a job where nothing's black and white. It's lots of shades of grey on how you manage one situation won't necessarily apply to another. So you really do have to hone your problem-solving skills and there's no better place to do it than starting right at the bottom and working your way up. Yeah, I couldn't couldn't agree more. I um I started as a uh, as a call taker back in back in the day. That was one of my first jobs in in British Gas, and and managed to work my way up there. But I always look back on that time as a a real apprenticeship, a real appreciation mm -hmm. for starting at the at the very bottom of an organisation, um, and working 
in in teams and and talking to customers and really understanding what the what the real issues were and it, it it's it's definitely a I totally agree with your your thoughts there. Yeah, and I'm kind of big on apprenticeships because I think if those had been available when I was going through school, because at the time when, when I went to school, it was like you go to uni or you get a job. There wasn't yeah. really any in between. And I think that's why I'm big on apprenticeships because I think you'd get more out of getting the practical experience in doing your education alongside it rather than doing this, you know, all bells and whistles degree. But actually... Did I need a politics degree to do HR? Probably not. But it's life experience, and I think that's what you've got to take away from it. You, there's, there's the educational side of someone's journey, but there's also the sort of the other side to it, the life skills yeah. that you, you have to learn in order to be a successful adult, I would say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and have you noticed a, a, a change in, in HR? Certainly... The, the better companies I've worked in, HR have been in the room more often when the key decisions are being made rather than being asked to come in after the decision has been made to help deploy it. Have you noticed that change over the years or is it still uh, still sort of stuck for you? I think there's two schools of thought with HR. I think people traditionally see us as the sort of axe-wielding people that go around saying computer says no type mentality, this sort of back office personnel type department and when I first started in HR I would say it probably was that but now it's become much more strategic and it is more what I would call business partnering so it's helping the leadership make informed decisions so there's a lot of emphasis placed on finance and money as a resource for a company and even though I hate the term human resources your people are actually your biggest asset they cost the most money, I would say. Yeah. And they take a lot of investment if you want really good staff, if you want to get people in and you want to train people up. It's an investment. And I think some people I think more companies are realizing the value placed on looking after the people if you want to be successful. And I think part of that is getting your HR people or your your people and culture and um, professionals in the room because they're the ones, they're the experts that can advise you yeah. and say, yeah, you're doing the right thing here, or we need to look at things in a different way. I think it's a shame in some places where HR are kind of kept out of a boardroom or or wherever in these big meetings because a lot of the time you're not seeing it from a different angle, and I feel like you need all the experts in the room to help make a, an informed decision. And if you're not factoring in your people, what does that say about your business? I don't know. It's Yeah. Yeah, I don't you, think it's great to be honest. No, you, you, you're right. And the the word that really jumps out to me there, what you said, is the experts in the room. And I think you've got to really challenge boards and executive groups if they don't have the HR expert in the room. Is it that they don't feel that they're expert enough to be part of that conversation, and they don't trust them enough to be part of that conversation, or is it something else? And I think it's asking some of those provocative questions to sort of say, why isn't that that expert in the room with you when these conversations are being had? I think, and it's interesting because obviously, because you do a lot of work with mentoring, but I kind of call it that critical friend role. So it's somebody there who's not having a go at you, isn't trying to be insulting or pick fault, but just basically saying, have you thought about it this way? 
and putting the brakes on ever so slightly just to stop and look and think we could be walking into a disaster here in the nicest possible way. And it's, it's, I think a lot of it is trust. I think if some people or higher executives have had a bad experience with a HR professional, they just see it as, oh my God, HR are here. You know, it's that kind of eye roll thing. Whereas actually, if you can get past that and learn to trust your experts on your people, I think a lot of people think they can deal with people issues and that they're really qualified because we deal with people all the time. I manage teams of 20 people. doesn't make you a great people person. Um, And I think as long as you keep your expert in there and you trust them and you trust their opinion, it doesn't mean you have to take their opinion, but that you've factored it into your decision-making. I think that's the key. And I think sometimes they're always kept out of it because other people think they know best. Yes, And to me, that's a very dangerous thing for a leader to think. It's quite an arrogant thing because you want your all your experts, you want your fa- finance people in the room. Mm. I wouldn't know the first thing about finance. You want them in the room. You want your ops people in the room. I'm no expert on marketing. You'd want them in the room. So why wouldn't you keep your per- people person in the room as well? Yeah. So I think it's some businesses do operate on that assumption that they know best when it comes to their people. But sometimes I think, in some businesses, they can be too far removed from what's actually going on and what the issues are. So, yeah, I think that critical friend role, I think HR's got a long way to go in terms of putting that into place more rather than being that person that's kind of sat there going, no, I can't do that, can't do that. (laughs) Because to me, it's finding a way. I don't believe anything's impossible, and I don't like it when people try and hit people over the head with policies and say, well, the policy says that you can't do that. It's written down there. You can't do it. Yeah. And I'm not I'm not buying it. And I, I think there's a default for some HR people to turn around and do that. Yeah. So I think it's just changing mindsets. And I think there's a lot of there's a lot of good HR people out there that you see, and particularly on LinkedIn, where, where I kind of see a lot of things and people trying to change that mindset. But I think it's difficult for HR. And it's something I felt. I suppose early on in my career is that with your HR professionals, they feel like they can't really have a public voice almost that they have to kind of sit there behind the scenes, pulling the strings, but can't really offer an opinion because it might be seen as controversial. And I think that's changing ever so slightly, but I think it's really important for HR people to spread the messages and spread their expertise because I think they're doing themselves a disservice. They know a lot more than they think and they've got a lot more value to add yeah. So I think it's just promoting that and promoting that within the profession. Yeah, no, I think you're, I think you're right. And the the other thing I recognise as well is that the the HR person linked linked to the critical friend observation you've got there, they've got the pulse of the organisation. If they're good at their role, they're able to sort of be that person that understands all the 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 stories going around the organisation and to be able to understand the 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 gossip versus the facts and to be able to play that back in a professional balanced way in, in that boardroom or in that sort of meeting room to to really help make the decision in a in a really compassionate professional way yeah because whatever happens no matter what decision is taken it will impact people in some way and i think what people tend to forget when they're sat in a boardroom is actually the first question that's asked when a decision is made is how does that impact me? Mm. They're not bothered about the team. They're not bothered about the company. They're just bothered about themselves. So 
it's trying to factor that in that you'll have lots of different people with their own story. This decision might be great for them, but for others it won't be. And so there's some others might not even care less. So it's trying to factor in how do you manage all those different opinions. You can't make everybody happy, but there's ways to go about communicating those decisions and factoring that in that will work well for everybody. Even if they think that it doesn't really impact staff, it still does. There's still a judgment being cast on the leadership around their decision-making. So I think it's just making sure that there's someone there that can be able to manage all of that to try and, I suppose it's not even contain issues. It's to try and stop issues becoming an issue in the first place. Mm. Yeah, yes, absolutely. So, so pulling all of this together then you 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 drop loads of insight in into this podcast already but is there a, is there a a single life lesson that you always kind of come back to that that's really stuck with you that you want to share with us yeah i think for me it's kind of understand what your core beliefs are and what's important to you and refuse to compromise on that if if you're particularly in a hr profession if there's something that's compromising your values and you you're kind of working with a leadership team who's going against what you believe in I would say just don't ever sell your soul to fit in with that sort of toxic environment if that's what it is to you I think there's a lot I see it around a lot and I, I read a lot about lots of HR people struggling and the way that HR are treating you know being treated by leadership teams or how they're trying to defend their staff, but they can't because they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. And it's it's really prevalent at the moment in the HR industry, which is such a shame to the point where there's lots of people thinking they're going to exit the profession, which, you know, by no, it's no mean feat that there's a lot of training that goes on to get mm. into HR. And the fact that people are that off, off put by that, I think is really sad. So I think not everywhere is the same. So you've got to just find the right environment for you. So I would say don't sort of sell your soul. But equally, I suppose with my life lessons that I learned very early on is that you just don't let people treat you like crap. doesn't matter who they are. You know, I, I told a cabinet minister to to do one when I was down in London. And it's like I, I wouldn't – if someone really crossed the line with me, yeah. I don't care who they are. It would just be like, no, I, I can't accept that. And this is the reason why. Yeah. So I think it's just making sure that you have the assertiveness and the confidence that if someone's crossed the line or they're doing something that you fundamentally disagree with and it, it goes against your principles that you speak up and you do something about it because otherwise in HR you will crumble because you take on a lot of pressure. You're taking on what the leadership's saying to you. You're taking on what that person and how they're dealing with it and you, you're trying to manage your own internal battle as well. And it, there's a lot of pressure and you, you kind of ask, sometimes I have to ask the question, who's looking after the people doing the looking after? Yes. So I think it's really important that your HR professionals can feel comfortable enough and safe enough to speak up. And if they don't get the answer that they want, then there's nothing stopping them looking yeah. somewhere, for somewhere else in for a place that, that will value what they value. You know, yeah. every everyone's values are different and every company's values are different. And if you're responsible for creating a culture or 
supporting people you need to make sure that you're on board with it as well because you're, you're an extension of that business you're not necessarily working for the leadership you're not necessarily working for the member of staff you're working for that entity yeah. that organization or that business so you have to be the extension to that and if you don't believe in it it's it's not a good mix so no totally there's a lot to juggle I would say yes and just picking up on one thing you said there I found really interesting who's looking after the people that are looking after the people um who do you think should look after the people that are looking after the people to me I would say if you've got a really good culture everyone should be looking after each other I don't and I don't and sometimes there's a bit of a danger when you've got something like human resources or or head of people in your title Mm. that it's just all on you that it's only one person's responsibility for the people or one person's responsibility for the culture whereas actually it should be everybody's responsibility so to me it's educating people enough to say how are you are you all right are you really all right and for and sometimes in HR because of the things that they're working on it can be so confidential there's not a lot they can tell you about it but just to say just somebody asking means a lot mm. so I think it's it's everyone's responsibility really and I think if you've got good well-being packages in place then you'll have people external that you can go to as well if needed yeah. and there's the, there's options there for people so not one size doesn't always fit all I would say with that no 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 I like it okay so just just moving that into a, a, a bit of a practical question do you do you have a daily routine or is the breadth of your role just you you get drawn to things I think I think back in the day I would have said yeah I did have a routine but I kind of just go with the flow a bit more now sort of pre-covid like you know after covid I think it's it's an interesting one the only real constant is my kids get up at like half five so <laughs> no matter what time they go to bed so <laughs> I think my, my job's so varied it takes me there and everywhere so and that's why I like it I like the variety I, I get bored very quickly so it, I need things to keep me sort of busy um so I love the variety um what I find with myself is that I have to put in breaks I have to consciously think I need to take myself away or go for a walk or something because my it's it's within me that I would just carry on working all the time and that was that's all I do so yeah. I do now have to sort of say right I'm going to have a lunch break now and I have to force myself to do it in the same way I have to force myself to have holidays sometimes I think it's it's a bit of a strange one but um I suppose with my routine I, I do like to make time for sort of reading up on things so especially because I'm in a standalone role at the moment I want to make sure that I kind of keep up to date with everything that's going on in the HR realm in particular because it's there's a lot of um, employment law and things like that I try and make time at least an hour a day to kind of either watch videos or catch up on sort of updates that are coming out and, and on the safeguarding side as well so that's a new area for me that I'm learning so I try and do as much research as I can really um I try and make sure that I have a family time as well because obviously with, with having very young children it's important to spend time with them um but yeah I find it kind of quite liberating as well so using a platform like LinkedIn for example something I've been doing recently because I kind of feel quite liberated by sharing my thoughts mm. 
before I would normally just keep them to myself and I think well why because I've got maybe expertise that I can offer or an, an opinion or an insight that's worth sharing so I kind of enjoy doing some little posts every now and then if I've got the time I find it quite therapeutic almost I've got so many yeah. ideas and things going on it's sometimes helpful to to write things down yeah absolutely and so I, I've definitely noticed that about you in, in the last couple of months was there a was there a spark of inspiration that kind of took you down that road or was it just finding the time to do it no I think working in in the football club you I kind of the biggest learning curve I've seen with that is all around sort of the marketing side of things and the social media element and how important it is. Suppose where I was working in my other companies, I was too far removed from that. Whereas actually it's quite a powerful platform to share best practice and ideas and link up with people and and have a good debate about things that, you know, people that you might never have crossed paths with or people in different industries. And I think it just unlocks another networking opportunity almost and you kind of see that through sort of the interactions that you get with it so I would say it's never going to go away so you use that tool in the same way that you would do with your networking opportunities and things so yeah I find it quite quite good and if no one reads it who cares and I'm not bothered as long as I've got it out of my head and throw it down somewhere <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way of looking at it so um thinking of of something that's quite quite a big topic then i like to ask this uh, in a, all of our podcasts we're talking about bias obviously you're in a uh, a sport that has been heavily dominated by men's football and we're seeing a lot more of women's football coming through now which is you know we're, we're seeing how powerful that can be we're seeing how well the england women's team did recently and what that did to the nation as well yeah. What, what what are your thoughts on on bias and and is it something that we'll we'll just continue to deal with and manage and, and it'll just get more and more positive or or do you just see a a future where we're not going to see a lot of improvement? I think it's tricky, obviously, isn't it? Because you've got your men's teams and you've got got your women's teams, so there'll always be a bit of a divide in in the sport. I would say, but I would say that you're never always going to remove bias even though I'm in charge of, of EDI I think there's always humans are always inherently biased in some way shape or form I think what the important thing is is understanding your bias and learning where your blind spots are with that and then putting things in place to try and overcome that that internal bias and I think that's where your improvements start to be made it's not necessarily you can educate as much as you can but I think you need to understand your own bias first yeah. and then you can take that and educate others I think like you're saying that obviously the England team was absolutely a phenomenal achievement and it, I think it's going to take the the sport very far and I think there's loads of opportunities for, for women to get involved I think do I feel like it it's a bit off-putting at the moment possibly and I think you see that through sort of recruitment and things like that but that being said, um, on Saturday there was a, a female ref on the pitch who did an outstanding job, and you know, and and that's just speaks mm. volumes. Yes. And uh, hopefully it will continue and we'll get get more people in the sport, whether it be in the back office side, um, or on the field. And it'd be good to see it on the field because that's where it's m more visible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's kind of, I think it's 
sport in general, I think, has come a long way because when I think about when I was at school, I wasn't even allowed to play football at school in PE lessons. It was hockey, netball around us, and that's all we played. We were never allowed to play football. And yeah. I think now when I look at my daughter, she's joined a, a young under-7s football team. You know, they're give, getting given opportunities to go and learn those yeah. things and, ha- and have those things put in place now. So I think... It's it's a long journey if you're going to start changing society's mindset, and you know it. Sometimes it takes generations, but you just can't. You've got to constantly keep on at it, yeah. and highlighting it that it just becomes the norm. But until people understand that their their own biases, I think it it will be difficult because I think a lot of that comes from your own backgrounds and how you yourself are made up. Yeah. You know, what, where your family, what your family think and, you know, that kind of thing. In the same way that my dad influenced me with politics, that, that was a big thing for me to go off and do what I wanted to do. It's with everything, your family's opinions on things, you know, that's a big one. Yeah. And then where you grow up, what's around you, what school you go to, you know, what knocks you take in life, it all becomes part of who you are and forms your opinions. Yeah. So you're never going to get everyone's opinions the same, but I would like to think that people understand why they think the way that they do. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? When I first thought of this question, it's, it's an important question to ask. And I was really interested in in what leaders thought about where we were moving as a society. And and my, my views adjusted slightly o- over the period of doing this podcast. And I guess I'm I'm kind of where you are really, which is, yes, it's getting better. Yes, it will continue to get better. But ultimately, as a as a human race, we're kind of, sh- our shorthand for building relationships is biased in some way, shape or form and how we kind of get to know people. But being aware of your bias and and trying to understand it and and having some of those uncomfortable conversations as to why you feel a certain way or why you've said a certain thing or thought a certain thing and getting past that yeah. is is where we sort of see intergenerational improvement, I think. Yeah, and I think it's that opportunity. So like I was saying, where I felt very hemmed in by where I was, I went I went, I made a conscious effort to go and do something different, go and learn about different people and and things. And I think if you understand your bias, you'll proactively do something about going, finding out how other people live, surround yourself by people who are from different religions, different backgrounds, find out about people who might not have as much money as you. How do they live? Yeah. And you just, it's exploring the tapestry of society almost. You, you have to understand it to understand your own bias. And I think that's where your viewpoint changes until you do something in practice to overcome it. It's all very well and good doing a PowerPoint presentation every every year on EDI, but actually you go out and live it. You go and do volunteering, you go down to the food bank and you see how other people are living. And that's the only way that you can truly understand it and start to change. You question your own values and your beliefs and think actually I'm, I might do something to help. So I think it's, it's that putting it into practice as well. I think yeah. you can talk about it all you want, but you need to go and actively do something about it. And I think where football is, where they, you know, they're putting it on TV more. It's just getting the edu- that's the education piece, but it's then getting your young girls into, into clubs. 
So that's done, done through the school. So last week, my um, daughter's school put out some leaflets for young girls to go and join a team. So that's where you start getting people involved yeah. in it and start creating a community and it becomes a real lived thing and an experience rather than just this tokenistic. I'm, I'm not a big believer in sort of tick boxes or doing that tokenistic exercise. It, you really have to put it into practice and, and take active steps to to overcome that. Yeah. yeah. And it, and it, that sort of stuff is just, it's not authentic. People see through it. Yeah. And it's just, it's just not, it doesn't create a legacy. When, once that person or once that program's finished, there's, there's nothing in its place. It hasn't kind of created, as you say, that, that community around it because it, it wasn't real in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. And people just don't want to, they don't believe in that. And that's where you come back to your values again. You start to weave it into what you believe in. And if you want to change people's beliefs, you need to go and show them that that real lived experience, I would say. Yeah. Yes. So we, we're on the final question, Anna. I'm, I'm really interested in you know, where, where next for you. So let's just assume, you know, that you you get through the playoffs and, and next year is, is first division football. So let's just assume that's that's going to be what you want anyway. But beyond that... What is your what does your future look like? Are you even thinking that far ahead? No, because I think obviously when when Elliot was was ill and then we went through COVID, I kind of had and, and before that, I sort of had like seven or eight years where life kind of kicked me in the ass for a very long time. So to me now it's kind of life is too short mentality. So it's to enjoy every single day. So I, I, whereas I, I always see where I'm going and I see it very clearly, I think what I've learned over the last probably five years or so is to to enjoy it more, is to just sometimes put your laptop down and, and actually enjoy things. So I think it's just making sure that you never miss an opportunity. Um, you know, so I think that's the, the key thing for me is, you know, fingers crossed we do get into League One because it'll just be, absolutely incredible and and thoroughly deserved but it's to enjoy everything that comes with all that the ups and the downs because every part of it is a learning and and you've just got to continually learn to grow and you know be but be better and do better in your life I think you know it's not all about work but it's not all about family it's just getting the right sort of balance in place and just it, it it's that purpose and fulfillment, I would say, mm. just to make sure that that's always there. Yeah. And wow. that's the big thing for me. Yeah. That's a really good way to to end the podcast, actually, Anna. So many things that I think people will listen to this podcast and take lots of insight from, from your early days as a, as a teenager, understanding what you wanted and, and really grabbing it clearly some some nurturing from your family environment as well and, and all of the different things you've been able to pull out as far as the HR industry and and where that's going and then finally a little bit of gratitude and, and just taking opportunities as they as they come to you both in in family and in work life as well just so many different things I've, I've loved listening to what you've had to say Hannah so thank you thank you so much for sharing today and, and thank you so much for your time well, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me for my first ever podcast. I enjoyed it. <laughs> That's great. First of many, I'm sure, Hannah. So thank you very much. So 
As always, thank you for choosing to listen to What the Future. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please hit subscribe and tell others about us. And finally, mentoring is a hugely valuable step on the leadership journey and we're here to help. If you feel the same way, then please get involved. Tap the Join Us button on our webpage, which is www.futureleadersmentoring.com and follow us on LinkedIn. And for now, goodbye and we'll speak again soon.